This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. From Joy 94.9 in Melbourne, I'm Stephanie Longmuir and you're on Dying to Tell, a podcast series where we explore end of life and death in a frank and honest way. As the funeral industry tries to stay relevant at a time of disruption from startups, the death movement and families looking for non-traditional options, on this episode of Dying to Tell, we are asking, do funerals matter? And in an attempt to get a diversity of views, I have invited a panel of guests that I hope will surprise and delight you with their insights and their knowledge. I have four guests in the studio, as well as my producer, Gina, and we'll work my way around the desk in introducing them. And I apologise for condensing what are extensive and very impressive bios. Mike is Associate Professor and Head of Discipline in the History and Philosophy of Science program at the University of Melbourne. His ongoing research and teaching lie at the intersection of contemporary technologies and daily life. Of particular interest to us, this includes studies of online memorials, body disposal and other technologies associated with death. He has co-authored three research books and over 120 peer-reviewed papers, including the recently published research book Death and the Digital Media. Thank you, yes. Tamara (laughs) Cohn, Tammy, is Associate Professor of Anthropology in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. She's currently the Coordinator of Gender Studies at the University of Melbourne. Tammy has critically explored issues of identity and belonging, death and dying, the body and senses, communities of practice and methods and ethics in anthropological research. Most recently, she's been in involved in producing a wealth of co-authored research publications that include a monograph, Death and the Digital Media, The Social Life of the Dead and The Leisured Life of Living Online, and an edited volume of Residues of Death, Disposal Refigured. Welcome, Tammy. Julia, our next guest, is a counsellor with qualifications in mental health, social work, couple and family therapy, and specialist training in grief and bereavement. Julia has worked with people across many settings with a focus on health and illness, grief and trauma. Julia. And finally, Michael Cox, Director of Gardenia Funerals, is a Melbourne-based funeral director who began in the funeral profession almost 20 years ago. He is a trained embalmer and has worked in every aspect of the funeral business. He's also one of the most progressive and innovative funeral directors in the funeral profession. Welcome, Michael. So we have the philosopher, the anthropologist, the therapist, and the funeral director. It's going to be interesting. Welcome, and thank you all for joining me today on Dying to Tell. Before we dive into today's big question, I'd like to know about your first experience or memory of a funeral and what impression it made on each of you. Who'd like to begin? Julia? When I first heard that question, I was it actually took me a while to, to sort of think about what my first funeral was. And I actually do believe I went to one of my oldest friend's funerals. Her dad died when she was 16. And I certainly have a memory of him dying, but I actually don't have a memory of being at the funeral, although I, I know I would have been there. I think the most significant one for me was probably in my early 20s, which I think now was 
is quite late to be going to a funeral and how lucky of how fortunate I've been in that my uh, paternal grandmother died she was 97 my nonna and who didn't speak English so we'd had she'd been in Australia for many years but I I didn't speak Italian or her dialect so she had died it was a funeral in Yarraville and very rich in Catholicism and I can remember attending I remember the pain but not very engaged myself in the actual ceremony. Interesting. Mm. Tammy, what about you? It's interesting because I I also had a tough time thinking about um, when the first one would have been. My family did not do funerals. I didn't. Uh, my grandmother had died and I adored her. She lived with us, but we, my parents were not into funerals. But my first vivid memory, I think, is when I was doing my first PhD research on a little remote island in the Hebrides of Scotland. And something really struck me. Um, There was a youngish man who died far too young, and he was an incomer. And it was an island, really, of incomers that had come from all over the place. And what struck me was the way that the funeral brought this community together. And I also realized that while you choose you know, you don't choose where you're born. You definitely choose where you die. And he had many choices. He'd lived in many places, but he chose to be buried in this particular community. So for me, that was a really striking first experience that helped me also think through what it means to belong to a place like that, where um, you are invested in a in people who might have been drawn together from all sorts of different backgrounds, but you're gathered around a particular location and a particular experience of place. So for me, that was a really, it was very emotional and it was very um, striking for me as a young woman. Mike? A couple of things come to mind. Uh, One being uh, my father's funeral. I spoke at the funeral, but I can't remember what I said and I can't remember anything much about the funeral at all. But what I do remember is at the viewing the funeral director had parted my father's hair on the wrong side and I found that very disturbing and I didn't quite know what to do about it. My, my impulse was to correct it, yeah, but I didn't feel that it was the right thing to do uh, to, to correct it. A second memory I have is a very, a very old friend my age. Uh, we'd known each other since university days died and I was asked to give the eulogy and the interesting thing there was that in giving I didn't I wasn't at all concerned about giving the eulogy and I didn't I I didn't feel that it was a you know a traumatic uh, um, experience to give the eulogy you know I was perfectly composed and held it together and did it but in preparing the eulogy I was not composed I found that I found that was a highly emotive, uh, a very emotionally engaging process to think about her life, to think about our experiences together, you know, to put that biography that shared, because much of it was shared, of course, being the same age and being friends for so long, you know. So the, the preparation uh, was was very, very confronting for me, not the delivery. And Michael? 
Steph, my first memory would have been about 30 years ago when my father passed away as a result of our motor vehicle accident. I can recall uh, my mum waking me up at uh, 2 in the morning, or actually I think I woke up uh, to the knock on the front door from the police to let her know that he'd passed away. I can remember sitting at the kitchen table, and I was very young at the time, I think, you know, six or seven, and I was sitting on her lap and, uh, you know, just recalling you know, the uh, disbelief in, in my mum and, and her reaction in, in how it happened. But back in, uh, you know, 30 years ago, uh, it wasn't really the done thing that children go to funerals. And I can recall my grandmother, you know, saying, you know, come, he can go to the church, but he was not allowed to go to the burial. And I've always you know, remembered the fact that, you know, I never really felt that I really did say goodbye because I only went halfway mm-hmm. with him. And uh, I can just, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a memory that, you know, you don't forget. Uh, I can recall being in the church and uh, and things like that. I have no idea what was said at the time. But I do know the next time that, you know, uh, part of the funeral was a week later going to the cemetery and, uh, he, and seeing his grave uh, where he was buried. Gosh, in those four small stories, we've already got so much out of, you know, that big question, do funerals matter? Because, you know, we've heard about community, um, we've heard about, you know, preparation and, and, and what that means in putting together a funeral service and, and then about that experience of that disconnect that, that you felt, Michael. Um, Tammy, I guess as our, as our resident anthropologist, I have a question that that has kind of been generated by a statement I read um, from a, a historian, Walter Lecoeur. He says in, in his book, The Work of the Dead, as far back as people have thought about the subject, care of the dead is regarded as the foundation of religion, of community, of civilization itself. Do you agree with that? I would, yeah, I think I would. I think, um, of course, there's a huge variety of, of ways in which people can commemorate the dead, can get, gather together around death. And yet there are also similarities that you find as well. Very often, for example, you'll have very different rituals, very different timings, very different ideas about what to do with the dead body in that context, for example. It could be hung around for a while, for weeks, for months, or it can be disposed of very quickly. There are many different ways in which people deal with death, and yet um, very often there is a, a gathering of, of people who are close to the person. It's about relationships that, that have built up over, over a long period of time. Often it's about a whole community getting together. Often it's about wearing special clothes, about eating special foods or avoiding special foods for a long period of time in some places in the world. Sometimes it's also, there's often sound. So in a church, you're probably familiar with, with, with song. In um, some contexts, it's keening and crying and wailing. It's, it can be, there are lots of different ways in which people um, mark the passage of time between one stage of life and another. And death is, is, is just one of these many, many stages that get uh, marked in particular ways. And what's really fascinating to me is that um, we always used to talk in, in, in our own context about moving, moving on. So it, you know, seeing the funeral as an opportunity to mark something and then be able to go beyond it. But now, 
people are always talking about continuing bonds. Mm-hmm. That while yes, you want to emotionally deal like 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 um, Mike was saying, you want to emotionally deal with this this tragedy of loss. At the same time, you want to find ways to connect with the dead. And people have been doing this in societies around the world in many different ways through ritual and and religion in some contexts. And in in ours now, we're very interested in how technology allows this kind of thing to happen. So I guess I'm interested to hear what everyone else has to to say about that. I mean, what is the purpose of a funeral or end-of-life ceremony? Is it about marking a death or is it about honouring a life? It's interesting the way that's um, changed, uh, or at least I think it has. People might correct me on this because my history is shaky and and I often exaggerate difference. But it seems to me that we have moved from a position of where the funeral is an opportunity to grieve. The funeral is a sombre occasion. The funeral is a structured occasion to a situation where more often than not a funeral is this celebration rather than an occasion for for grieving. Um, I notice that the the Catholic Church has a particular attitude to this uh, where they feel that uh, that where the funeral occurs in in the as a as a Catholic service, that it may not be a celebration of life, and that is that is is frowned upon. It is a religious event, not a celebratory event. But I was really interested um, when we were in New Orleans at a funeral uh, trade show uh, to see the the way uh, the community there. Uh, use use jazz as part of the funeral. The first line music is very sombre, and the first line music is played by a, a, a certain uh, combination of jazz musicians with particular instruments. Uh, g- for example, guitars are not permitted, uh, uh, trumpets are not permitted, but trombones are permitted, and so mm-hmm. forth. So they're mainly brass instruments, but also drums. On the way to the burial... First line music is played. It's extremely sombre. It marks uh, steps where people take a step forward, bring the net, bring the next leg back to the up to the first leg and stop. Another step and stop. Another step and stop. And that's all the way to the to the funeral to the burial. Then once the final committal has occurred, the final disposition has occurred, and the and the body is in the grave. Second line music begins and the second line music is joyous and celebratory and people take out the the tradition is that people will will dance and wave a handkerchief in the air as they're dancing and the waving of the handkerchief is the drying of tears Mm -hmm. and the celebration is due to the you know the, the hope and the belief that the person is now in heaven and all, all is well, and and life goes on. So, uh, it's it, 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 is it a celebrate? Is th- this funeral a celebration of life or an occasion for mourning? It, it clearly is both, both in, yeah. in, 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 of, in that yeah. uh, particular uh, ceremony. It sort of speaks to integration in a way, and I wonder if it's kind of yeah, it's both and rather than either or. And I was thinking as you were talking to me about continuing bonds, because I think it's sort of reflected in grief theory around therapies for people and when that can be helpful, which. Really moved from when we think of Kubler Ross 
given some of the the early kind of grief theories around the, you know relatively early <laughs> more recently but we're much more about stages of grief and people had to pass through very prescriptive kind of ideas of how people would get through it and now we're into much more sort of postmodern and narrative ideas around continuing bonds and and um, Michael White a very important narrative therapist in Australia wrote a beautiful paper years ago it's called saying hello again which was about remembering people and and holding them close and I think that speaks to our attachment needs which are very much about holding people close even after they died and I think the rituals in funerals and I know sometimes coffins are present sometimes not depending on context but proximity can feel very important as well as the collective meaning in a funeral of being held and I was at a funeral of um, a very close someone very close to me earlier this year and the partner of the person said something and he was sitting in the front the front row was in a funeral parlour there was no coffin present and afterwards we were talking he said I felt like people had my back and I thought he, it was such a beautiful comment because it was both literal, people were behind him, mm. but it also had this incredible, he was held. And I think funerals as containers for mm. that sort of strength of emotion. And in our context, I think it's also one of the few places where it's still, well, maybe not few, but you know, it's permissible to have a range of emotions and to express some very strong emotions that may not be seen as appropriate in other contexts and I think in terms of the sort of psychological process for people that can be very very important. I was thinking as you said that there are also public funerals and and sort of public figures and I think what's so fascinating to me is the way in which communities rally around these emotions at particular times. I, I was in England at the time when um, Princess Di died, and it was amazing. There were um, I remember a newscaster interviewing a man who was weeping just uncontrollably, and it was it was fascinating because she said to him, "Gosh, you're really moved by this," and he said, "Oh, my wife died two years ago, and I didn't cry." But now, you know, it, and of course, here was this opportunity to, to kind of latch on to this public shared communal grief, a lot of other griefs. And I, I found that really, really fascinating. It, it is fascinating, but it, it's, uh, that, that kind of hysteria is just, <laughs> Just <laughs> appalling, uh, especially, uh, especially. Not for those who are It's appalling, especially when it occurs in in England of all of all places. It's highly I mean, restrained. Diana's funeral wasn't the wasn't the biggest. The biggest was the Duke of Wellington. Hundreds of thousands of people turned out for that, and they stood. Silently, there was <laughs> there was none of this carry on. Julia. And, and isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting the way Diana has been forgotten? Her, the, the the anniversary. I haven't of, forgotten her. The anniversary. <laughs> the anniversary. I still use excerpts from her funeral service in my services. I Do remember you? her. I can still shed tears for Diana. Well, you know. In fact, at, at, the, at Harry's wedding, I cried. I, I wept for Diana. Oh, yes. You, yes. You know, you know how I, she was buried on an island in in order to stop the the vast yeah. crowds from the, nobody goes there. No. They can't the get there. It's the, on a private the, the, estate. You nobody can't get go, there. Nobody tries <laughs> to go there. You can't get there. The, the, I mean, the security is The phenomenal. charity that she set up, nobody Sorry, contributes to. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, can you turn Mike's mic on? Julia, I just want to come back You're to a trouble, point. You're in trouble, Mike. I'd just like to come back to a point you made about, about rituals. Do you 
think that rituals provide a sense of order and stability in the middle of you know what is effectively chaos around around it? I think they provide um, potentially if they work for people, they provide incredible holding and comfort. I think they can speak beyond words. They're symbol, the, the symbolism of rituals that can be very important when people don't have words and sometimes when people are in acute grief and trauma, I think, you know, words are very hard um, to hold. I think they have, and the other people here are probably better to speak about the traditions of rituals, but, you know, they have deep meaning with us as human beings, you know, and particularly when you think about funerals often or, um, again, in our context, I mean, we're thinking about candles and all sorts of paraphernalia that accompanies them. But for people, they can also be a focus. So, again, with the collective sort of, meaning of a funeral for people I think the focus can be on it is a ritual in itself with many different components to it one of the things that I've thought about too though is when funerals don't work for people and when people are disenfranchised from funerals too because who who gets to be at a funeral who's in or out and I guess as someone who's been a family therapist I've been very interested when there's cutoffs they are they're such a highly emotive time they can be absolutely the site for all the anxieties all the conflict all the tensions as weddings can as you know any of these they're so highly evocative and I was thinking about um, you know we have stories obviously from the what happened during when lots of uh, men were dying of HIV AIDS where partners were not included in rituals and what happens in terms of disenfranchised grief for people so the ritual itself is not good or bad or have a meaning for people or be positive for people psychologically I think it, it depends so it depends on who's allowed to who's included who's excluded who gets to kind of participate in a meaningful way Michael you've witnessed well, I guess thousands of funerals now, really, yeah, over the yeah. years. What do you think, and, and you, you get to see um, religious funerals or non-religious funerals, the, the whole spectrum. What do you think makes for a meaningful funeral service? With me personally, I believe that a, a family will do what they feel they need to do in order to get to the next step after death. So whether that be you hold a funeral in a church because they believe that the rituals and uh, the prayers are important uh, to ensure their loved one goes to the next step, or whether that be a direct cremation, as uh, many families choose these days, um, because I don't feel the need to uh, have a coffin or have, you know, the service in a church, uh, because, you know, for various reasons. Uh, to give you a case, the lady it was 104, passed away Saturday evening. Uh, this particular family said, look, we've been with mum the whole time. Uh, the people that uh, started the journey have dropped off one by one, so why should we hold a funeral now for them to come back in and uh, show their face again, if that makes sense? You know, um, so they chose to have a direct cremation, and uh, they actually met the uh, hearse at the crematorium, put a flower in the coffin, and uh, they were heading out for lunch uh, to share memories and stories in a very informal way. Uh, if you are having a, a funeral, time, effort and energy is what uh, makes the funeral important. We put so much effort into weddings and uh, events, parties, whatever. But um, so many families, I feel, uh, one of the questions that I quite often get asked, how long is it going to take? Mm. Uh, which is a question that I find extremely frustrating because I think, you know, if your mum's lived 82 or 84 or 90 years, well, how long is a piece of string? I can't answer that question. Um, you know, and a funeral takes time, effort and energy. So if you don't put any of those three things in, 
the outcome that you get will be very, very poor. Ah. So that's kind of one of the dilemmas, isn't it? Because uh, people are in such acute pain often, and mm. the and there is a sense of the surreal. And mm. one of the first, you know, parts, particularly if it's an unanticipated or sudden death, yeah. is that the shock actually creates a space for people where it's almost impossible to think into planning. And it's one of the yeah. real dilemmas, I think, around how to do it when when we're often in a, a space where it's got to happen or they people feel like it needs to happen within two or three days. And I think that's And people are feeling so numb and, uh, exactly. and they're easily exactly. guided by other people's exactly. opinion as well. So Helpful Harry comes in, oh, you should do this and uh, adds their opinion on what you should or shouldn't do, which complicates things yet again. The, I think it's really important to yeah. think about the economy yeah. of of um, of funerals and uh, there was a news pro- uh, program I saw this morning, uh, not a program, an article this morning that was titled The Funeral Insurance Ripoff Hurting Australia's Most Vulnerable and it, you know, this comes up again and again but, you know, people are very um, vulnerable and they invest hugely without, you know, knowing that actually they're investing far more than they ever get back. And it's um, it's scary when there's that, that unfortunate interest in making money that becomes attached to people's desires and fears and grief. So, Michael, you're talking about how funerals take uh, time and effort and, yeah. and so forth, but the, the economics of it come in where you need to, or very often if you have a funeral at a, at a chapel, at a cemetery, for example, you book a time slot you do. and you got half an hour yeah. and that's it, mate. And uh, uh, part, of, part of your job is at, at the dismissal to ensure that everybody's out of there because somebody else is waiting. There's another family who's waiting. Yeah, but, but, but you can make extended bookings. If a yeah. family feel they need well, to... You can book for an hour, or, or and then the same thing happens. Or, or two hours, hours, and then the same hours. thing happens. It comes you know. back to the family and how they're communicating. I mean, uh, a lot of families will come into a, an arrangement and uh, make funeral arrangements. You do the arrangements. They meet with a celebrant. And then we're going to one plan, and then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of hours after you do that arrangement, we've gone from having two speakers to ten. Mm. Because it's more about the person uh, you know, sharing their point of view and making it about them than the actual person who's passed away. Because they feel that they've got to um, vocalise how important they are in the overall scheme of things. Mm. And that's when it is, it is hard. You have to say to our family, look, you know... You need to limit your, your speakers and uh, really communicate with each other because, let's face it, none of us want to sit in a chapel and listen to the same story ten different times. It would be ten different versions. Mm. But that's that, I mean, that's all about planning. And as a you know, and as, as an extremely good funeral director, Michael, you can assess a family's needs. And if, if they're a family that does need two hours for a service, then you will book an appropriate venue where you yeah. can have two hours. I mean, you're absolutely mm. right, Mike. At, at some of the crematoriums, the time mm. is 45 minutes um, or an hour, but then you make a double booking, you know, and, mm. and you know, if you're smart, you work that out. That, that That's just that's just a logistics thing. Um, I'm quite interested to, to hear what people have to say about the, the rise of the memorial service. Michael, you and I and see it see it a lot where families don't want a body present. Um, do you think that having no body present um, has changed the importance of a funeral service? Oh, <laughs> it, 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 look, I can only speak from my own experience. Four months ago, my grandmother passed away. Uh, her wish was to have a direct cremation. 
We didn't do a direct cremation for her. We actually held a traditional Catholic uh, funeral service. Uh, it was a very private uh, family affair, but we felt we needed to have her coffin and her body present from our point of view. It's really interesting yeah. to see the way the both the body and the personhood of the deceased waxes and wanes mm. through through the course of, of of the funeral. So the personhood is put front and centre at, at the viewing and people are, are, in, are encouraged to sometimes literally to embrace the personhood yeah. of the deceased, to touch, to kiss, to, yeah. to look at and then a distancing occurs when the coffin is closed yeah. but the yeah. coffin is still most often front and centre so the body and personhood is still you know, front and centre there and personhood is invoked through the speeches yeah. and, and yeah. through the music and all of that kind of thing. And then with the committal, the body and personhood is distanced from those present and that I'm fascinated to see the way different the way the committal is performed differently in different circumstances so I guess a lot of people don't notice this but I find it disturbing on the two or three occasions where I've attended the funeral and the body and the personhood is there front and center in the coffin and we the living are asked to leave the dead the coffin remains in situ yeah. And we leave the dead, yeah. leave the living, yeah. and the in in my view that makes a profound difference. The coffin should move off the catafalque down or out, and leave the living rather than that is also problematic because the committal in the case of a uh, of a cremation the the committal is not the final disposition yeah. in in the case of a burial the committal is the final disposition so stop. Yeah. yep but yeah. of, of course with with a cremation that's not the case the body and personhood is still there backstage yeah. sometimes yeah. for days before it's actually cremated yeah. and then it's still there as cremains in a plastic box some often picked up but sometimes yeah. not yeah. and then when it is picked up something has to be done with it so yeah. you see that, that the final disposition is delayed and delayed and there's you know gaps between yeah. it and and yeah. so forth and so on so all of the, as i say a lot of people wouldn't notice these things but I, but i think they are important they are important that's just so interesting i think this I've, i was thinking about the body and having been at the first funeral I've been to this year where the coffin wasn't, I've been to cremations before etc but the coffin not present and it did make me think about what does it mean to not see, you know, to not have the coffin and, and I think what Mike's saying about this waxing and waning, I'm curious about, I'm not sure but I'm curious about what that ha- what happens to uh, people emotionally for that. I mean one of the so-called kind of tasks I mean that I think the, the funeral ritual provides for people psychologically is, is the reality of the dead that's you know and sometimes do we need to see that in some way for that to be more cemented or to assist people with that and I'm not sure you know I'm not I mean often often you know people die we're not present for them and we know they've died so I just think it's a really interesting area and I think as things change more and there's more dis but I'm curious about what that distancing does or what it provides or doesn't provide for people and taking a next step on from that how important and this is a question for everyone how important is participation in a funeral is it enough just to witness 
or is experience essential? And I ask this simply for the fact that Michael and I have done a number of services this year where the service has been webcast because family mm. members and friends mm. couldn't get there. And there was one particular service that we did where we had 2,500 people tune in via a webcasting service, not on the day, but at a, a later time when it suited them. So, you know, like, and, and this is, you know, in the age of digital technology. That particular funeral that you're talking about, Steph, that's now had 3,500 views. Uh, yeah, and that funeral was held back in February. Does that oh. mean I've gone viral? You have, Steph. You've absolutely fascinating. Um, even with um, yeah, DVD, tribute DVDs with photo presentations, with our particular company, we have a link that we email out to families and they can actually view the DVD before the funeral. We can actually monitor how many times they've watched that DVD. And a funeral that we conducted yesterday, leading up to the funeral, that uh, that family had actually watched the DVD 22 times, wow. Uh, wow. which I found incredible. And I, I asked the family as to why, uh, you know, and they said, look, we, um, we watched it because we didn't want to be surprised on the day mm. and we felt that we wanted to have a first-hand experience before everybody else. It's now relatively common in, in the UK and the US and here too, I think, to, mm. um, to you know, uh, record and, and stream videos. And, and there's some interesting things about the, the technology there. One of the interesting things is whether you have one camera or two. This is controversial in the UK. I'm not sure here whether it is or, or not, but the, the, the idea of having two cameras is to have one focused on the coffin and the, and the people speaking and it's capturing the ceremony. The other camera is, is focused back on the people who are attending because people watching, they want to see, oh, there's Auntie May and, you know, there's George and uh, Frank is looking... Because as we were discussing before, the, the funeral is a social occasion. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a social yeah. where people get together. Yeah. But the idea of having two cameras is confronting for a lot of people. And in the UK, they, they tend not um, to have two cameras. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the robot? Yeah, I was going to say, but one additionally... That assumes this kind of passive audience. Mm. And it's about, you know, people are mobile. They're all over the world. They really want to be there, but they can't. And so you have this this technology that allows you to witness but not to participate. Mm. And so there are people working in this space trying to develop technologies that allow for that kind of interactive thing. Like there's a wonderful robot called Carl who I haven't – we haven't seen him for a couple of years. But he came um, to one of these expos and he, he maneuvers around the expo floor interacting with people and he would go to a funeral. And you'd essentially be in – Timbuktu at, on your computer using a Skype-like technology to appear as a head on um, Carl's head, oh, no. and you uh, use your mouse to maneuver the space so you oh. can go and peer into the coffin, you can go and say, oh, I don't like Uncle Frank, I'm going to avoid him, <laughs> and you go and talk to the relatives that you want to, and so you have an actual interactive you have a potential. Yeah. And and these kinds of um, things become... What, what interests me is not only that you know we have have gone all, all over the world, but we can gather together virtually in some sense to, to participate in this, this occasion. But likewise, the body is partable too. And for instance, if you have a cremation, it's possible to, to divide up the ash and for mm -hmm. people to mm -hmm. take them to mm -hmm. totally different ends of the earth mm -hmm. to participate in very different ways 
in with the same body in 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 different kinds of commemorative practices and that's that's really really exciting but kind of interesting and in in Japan for example people have ancestral shrines which and everybody used to gather around the single shrine but now people are moving all over so they need these little mini shrines and and the body is actually the dead are with you in that shrine so you move the dead with you around the world it, it's interesting that the catholic church has forbidden those practices uh, in, uh, in a recent ruling so um, the cremains are, are not to be divided the cremains are not to be carried around the world and relocated and put on the mantelpiece and what have you. I think yeah. the horse is exactly bolted right on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be, uh, no, it's <laughs> another one like yeah. um, banning the contraceptive yeah. pill. Yes. It's, 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 it's an own goal, yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I kind of can't help but have a reaction about the, you know, it's the old-fashioned part of me around the, the webcam. I mean, I was at a funeral where the person who died was Brazilian and they were able to stream it live to his family in Brazil, which I just thought was extraordinary and that was you know there was they had a flag up and so his parents his brother could actually be sitting halfway across the world participate well I, w- I would call that participating there's something for me about the live part of it and which is an interesting kind of use of language too but I'm um, I don't know the kind of the looking afterwards I mean the the you know do I look when it's convenient for me rather than when it's happening there's something about the disconnect in that that makes me uncomfortable and I'm not quite sure even though I, I'm really yeah. kind of pro having so many people being able to be involved you know and I yeah. The the robot hasn't been a huge success. Well, I've never seen one in any of my films. Funeral directors and funeral celebrants uh, um, think it's too freaky, <laughs> and that it and that it will disturb the ambience of the of yeah. the occasion. Having having the robot uh, cruising around and and talking to people. <laughs> on the on the other hand, the the uh, the guy who's developed it, and when we were chatting with him, um, he brought up a point that that you raised earlier, Michael, about people having already committed a lot. You were talking talking about the 104-year-old lady mm. uh, and um, the family had been with that lady all, you know, um, I, I imagine through her declining health and so mm. forth. Now, the, the um, scenario that he draws is, is a similar one where um, somebody is, is often ill for a protracted period, the family are, are visiting from all over the, the United States and, and all over the world, what, visiting in hospital, etc., etc. They've taken time off work. They can't take any more time off work. They've spent all this money um, looking, you know, doing the right thing, looking after her, showing, showing the, the deceased, the now deceased, yeah. uh, you know, love and affection and all of that. Okay, now... Now that she, he or she is dead, am I going to spend more money and take more time off work? Uh, and the answer is often no. I've, I've done my bit. Uh, the answer is no. But the, but with the robot, I can still <laughs> I can still you know I can yeah. still be there. Yeah. Yeah. I actually saying that my when my mother died, I I was living in England and she was in California, and I took two weeks off to be with her when she was in hospice care and she didn't die and so I had to take you know I took another week off and and um, I then was you know I'd really totally pushed it to the ends of the earth in terms of the time I could take away and I was just about to leave when she died 
I stayed an extra day to be with my father, but I couldn't stay for... And they didn't do um, a funeral as such, but they were going to have some sort of gathering. But I felt that I had, had been there. And yet would have liked if there's a lot of paraphernalia that's, that you can produce around a home version of a funeral. And, you know, I, I wanted to contribute to that. So you can do that. You can send photos. You can put together mementos and things to help one to, to deal with being absent. And that's, you know, that's an interesting point, Tammy, because, you know, traditional funeral rites were air, water, earth, you know, mm-hmm. fire, that sort of thing. In 2018, how do symbols and what what symbols are used, and Michael, you can probably speak to this better than anyone else, to help mourners communicate their stories? Uh, it's a good point. It's a good question. Uh, once again, it comes back to each, you know, uh, you've got the family at hand who's lost their mum or dad or whoever or child, whoever's passed away. Then you have the next group of people, which are the friends and the extended family. I'll answer that question in a roundabout kind of way because it is a hard question to answer because every uh, situation is unique and different. A funeral uh, that you conducted with me, Stephanie, earlier on in the year, it was a very public funeral, a very, very large funeral. Uh, I had a lot of, uh, once again, it was being streamed over the internet (laughs) and a lot of people watching it online. Uh, The family had the funeral in this particular venue the false illusion, what Mike spoke about before, with the coffin be, remaining in place so, and people walking away. In this particular case, they, they carried the coffin out to the hearse. The hearse drove off to what I would call a false illusion. The person actually came back into our care, uh, but to everyone attending the funeral, they felt that uh, this particular person was going off for the cremation, when in actual fact they weren't. Uh, the family were having a very private uh, goodbye the next day because they felt they needed to have the opportunity alone and with the very, very close family and friends that have been there uh, to say goodbye privately and quietly. So what that told me was the family didn't particularly want the big public funeral. They felt they had to do it for everybody else mm. in order to keep them happy, mm. where in actual fact they didn't want that. And the husband actually, I, I recall him saying to me, all these people, you know, said, you know, when, when, when this particular person became ill, oh, if you need a hand with anything, if you need help, you know, just call. Well, he did call and, uh, the help was very, uh, very few and far between. Uh, and he was actually quite angry a week or two weeks after the funeral. He's like, they're all gone now. Leading up to the funeral, I was getting phone calls, you know, text messages. When's the funeral going to be? Were you having the wake? Uh, you know, can I be involved? Uh, and then all of a sudden, it's all done and dusted. Everyone's gone back to their own day-to-day life, and he's left with two children and no help. And, and the bill of a very expensive public funeral. Symbols like, you know, we do video tributes. Um, some people do your pet hate candle lighting again that comes back to fire you know there's people who do balloon releases that's my pet hate um you know there's there's all sorts of symbols that are does there are all sorts of symbols that are important to people that i'm just thinking you know in 2018 what are some of the 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 more non-traditional ones that we have seen can i ask michael and stephanie where the teddy bear came from oh i have no idea mike it's like the candle lighting no one what I believe it's quite boring for extended family and friends to sit in a chapel or a church 
watching a family light a candle in memory of a person who's passed away, what does it represent when you blow the candle out? The funeral's all done. Then as people are leaving the church or the chapel, the candles are being blown out. I, I just don't understand the symbolising. You're a Catholic. You should understand it. It's we like the Paschal candle. But, <laughs> but when you've got 20 family members coming up and lighting a taper candle... What does it represent? It takes time. It, uh, it fills in time. When um, I went to the Columbarium in San Francisco oh, yes, to I visit. Love that place. <laughs> and it's an amazing place yeah. tucked behind yeah. the street. I lived in, in the Bay Area for years and never and knew never it was there. there. And it what's wonderful is because it's a different medium for memorialization, it permits in this kind of um, open-facing, you know, glass-fronted um, space for people to be very creative. I mean, some more traditional ones were just an urn, but then um, you had little cartoon characters, you had people's glasses, you had candles, you had um, little notes. You oh, my had... favorite one was the urn that says... Um... Ashes of a problem client. <laughs> little sign up against the other. That's great. Oh, and, and then one of them, I saw a sign that said, you know, something like, Daisy, now you can stay in San Francisco. Yeah. Because I nobody can stay. Yeah, yeah, nobody can stay in it can be buried there anymore. Yeah. So, you know, to actually be in the city needs to, requires a different way. And, well, there's no and, graveyards in um, San Francisco, not in that well, no, Bay Area. That's They're right. All, uh, and, the and there's no good, space so. to produce that kind yeah. of thing. So that, for me, the, what's interesting is, though, to think, who's who makes those decisions? A lot of the people interred there are very, they're like um, um, Harvey Milk's there, yes. you know, yeah. and it's uh, because there's a potential to be separate from the decisions about who can be present at a, at a funeral. You end mm. up with alternatives for people who are excluded from that space. And, and it produces a very different set of symbols mm. that can, can be attached to, the, to that uh, particular person. But I do have one question that, that yeah, yeah. I'm kind of interested in from just my perspective mm. because, you know, with funerals, we often have very limited um, time spans in which to put them together. And, and I mean, I think that's a bit of an anomaly too. I think that families probably should be educated to know that they can take two weeks or three weeks. It mm. doesn't have to be mm. two or three days. But mm. there is this all this always this sense of urgency around a funeral. And I'm just wondering, is getting busy a natural human response to loss? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure getting busy I'm not sure Stephanie I'm not sure if it's the automatic response or it's something we're conditioned into a bit around funerals and I'd my my gut feeling would be it's more than something we're a bit conditioned into I think the the and again it depends on the nature in some ways of the death too you know there'll be some differences for people where there's been an anticipated death mm. but even we know for people who have known a death is coming for some time the absolute um, cut off and the, the actual reality of the death coming to terms with the physical loss of the person is probably um, is so overwhelming I think is the starting point which is part of where the funeral really fits in for all the ways we've talked about that gets acknowledged I think people go to busy as a way of coping and that again I think is constructed by how we have been doing death. And I was just wanting to reflect a little bit back on where we started somewhere about, um, or the question you asked about the the sombre part, the grieving part versus the celebration or those two sort of 
um, elements. And I sometimes wonder about this, the way the celebratory nature gets talked about, whether we kind of feed into a bit of a denial of pain in that and I think we're in a cultural moment or space at the moment which is very much around being positive (laughs) which Mm. drives me nuts but Mm. you know like I I wonder where the space for wailing for you know the, the, the funeral is a container for a whole lot of feeling and emotion as well when people feel pressured to celebrate at the loss of this is painful and also, a funeral is a dress rehearsal for my own. Like, this is about, you know, the existential crisis mm. that comes for many of us around watching, witnessing, being part of someone's death. It's like, this is about my death. This mm. will happen to yeah. me. Mm. And I really get very, uh, you know, the celebratory, the, the where there's pressure or people feel a pressure to, we're going to celebrate this life. I think that's just. Th- there's confusion around that. Yeah. I think that yeah. word celebration is the yes. wrong word to use in a funeral. I will never say a funeral is a celebration, but I do believe at a funeral yes. there is an opportunity to celebrate Absolutely. a life. Absolutely, but that's it's never yes, I mean, a celebration. Think, is yeah. a twenty first. Yeah. Is a baby's christening. Yeah, is exactly. a you know yeah. is a yeah. is an eighteenth birthday party. Yeah. A funeral is not a celebration. It's a ceremony. Mm. But there, during that ceremony, there is an opportunity to mm. honour, remember, Absolutely. and celebrate. I think that's a, life. a lovely. So that's dif- I pull dif- families yeah, back with that. But I've yeah. had families who've said to me, "We want no mention of celebration. It's this great. is and like, you know." <laughs> When I've done services for babies, there's absolutely nothing celebratory about mm. a baby service. Let me tell you, nothing. Mm. So when people say, oh, your funeral should be a celebration of life, it's not. You know, mm. like that's not a celebration. Mm. I think the, uh, just the, the other thing that, that a funeral provides is, and we again have sort of touched on it, is it's a space for different narratives about that person to mm. coexist. And sometimes it's a continual narrative where everyone gives a different version, but often people get quite shocked because they hear a story about someone that they didn't know. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that again can, is a, is a kind of a fullness and a richness when it kind of sits sits well for people around hearing the fullness and richness of this person's life and I think that can be a very comforting and um, you know sometimes a very new experience for people as well. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.